Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to another episode of Sour and Sass. I am very excited to be joined by the CMO of Cheetah Digital, Richard Jones. Welcome to the show, Richard. How are you doing? But yeah, great, and thanks, uh, thanks for inviting me. Oh, no, man, I'm, I'm very excited to have you. This is going to be very exciting. So, two-time CEO turned CMO. What's the part they didn't tell you about being a CMO? <laughs> um, wow. Well, funny enough, I think I, there wasn't really any surprises because I've been um, either selling to marketers or deploying projects with marketers for, for 20 years. So um, I got a lot of CMO friends and seen seen the uh, the war stories and the, and the battle scars. No, I love that. But I got to push back a little bit because I'm a CEO and I get to make some decisions that makes all our marketing work. And I'm curious if you like what you find yourself in as a CMO and how you do this. What I mean by that is like positioning, who we're going to service, who we're not going to service, what products we're going to launch, what products we're not, what segments of the market we want to enter, which ones we don't. The choice is there. Make the marketing work. I'm not saying that marketing doesn't have a say, but it's like positioning, messaging, persona, product development, like how we drive value for a unique customer is sometimes outside of the purview of marketing. And then marketing is trying to make up for the fact, I get to see this every day, marketing is making up for the fact that they're selling a commoditized product or service in a marketplace where they're not the leader to a completely broad demographic that really requires an insane amount of resources to ever say anything that mattered. As a CMO, do you feel ever hamstrung by that or do you have a say in that? What's your role going from being a CEO, right, where you get to decide that to being a CMO? What's that difference there? Well, you know, it obviously depends on the relationship that you have with your CEO and your executive team. You know, that's that's the, the, the thing that will uh, define success or failure. Because one, one of the things that has always struck me about marketing is it tends to be, they tend to be, not always, but they tend to quite often be sort of the follower of sales. So sales, and that could be the CEO or the, the, the CRO or whatever, was, right, this is what we're going to do. This is our focus, boom. And then marketers, marketers scrabble around yep. trying to make that, that uh, strategy a success. And I've never thought that's a smart way of doing stuff. You know, that shouldn't be the case. Marketing should not be running around chasing after whatever the latest, you know, sales um, strategy is. Quite the opposite. The marketers need to be bringing the data to the table to inform the decisions, to make sure that we are actually focusing on what effort is going to, what's the least amount of effort for the maximum amount of revenue. Now, that's ultimately how companies succeed. And marketers have access and should have access to a vast amount of data that they're analyzing at a greater level than probably anyone in sales is to inform those decisions. Now, I think everyone who's listening said, hell yeah, Richard, I believe in that. The problem is, is my company develops products, ships them over to me and say, hey, go get 500 MQLs for this thing. And you're like, this thing sucks. I don't know if I can get you 500 MQLs for this. So if someone's stuck in that environment, which I agree is not necessarily conducive to success, how do they make marketing have a seat at the, the, the roadmap, that, that pre Instead of marketing be the, being the people you give the idea to and say, go get me leads, how do we get involved in the ideation and the development stage of 
company positioning, direction, product, things like that. What, what have you seen to be good ideas to do that? Well, firstly, I, I don't know about you, but I would never take a CMO role where I wasn't on the you know top tier table uh, of the executive uh, level, so that those decisions are made, you know, with collaboration uh, yeah. with your chief product officer, your chief revenue officer, you know. And if you're not, if you if marketing is a is a rung down, it's not a job I'll ever take. Why is that? Because unfortunately, Richard, I completely agree with you, by the way, but I'd say 95% of the people out there are in like that, frankly, that reality. I mean, we get to see it every day. I'm sure you got to see it a ton throughout your career. People, marketers trying to turn hay into needles, right? Kind of. well, I mean, you know, the, the, the reality is if, if marketing is seen as a cost center and not as a revenue engine, it's not going to be on the top tier of the executive uh, table. If it's seen as a revenue generating organization, um, you're going to be at the top tier and you're going to be consulted about what we should be developing products on, where where should be our focus, what's our target market, et cetera. Um, you know, the other side of it is that product marketing, you can use that as a really important bridge to ha- get into those conversations very early with the product team. And, you know, in, in, Cheetah Digital, product marketing doesn't actually sit in my group. Product marketing is in the product team. But that doesn't matter. In fact, in many ways, that actually helps uh, because you're so joined at the hip, or you should be if you're doing SaaS uh, marketing well, with your product marketers and they're working for the product team. You've got this bridge into product to to have a seat at the table in discussions much earlier. And that, that that can be before sales are involved. You know, so so it, yeah. it's usually structural. These these issues around power and control and how they early are. Yeah, here's the hard part, Richard. First time CMOs, they don't know what to ask. They show up and they get burned. And I see it all the time. You probably see it in your network all the time. What questions could you ask in this interview stage? So, you know, you're you've been a director, you've been a VP for a while. You say, look, I'm ready for that next moment in my career, but I don't want to be a guy with a title or a woman with a title or a person with a title who doesn't have authority. I want to have enough authority to fall on my own sword. In other words, I want enough authority that I can fail. I want to not be a customer. I want to be a revenue generator. I want to have a relationship with product. I want to have, you know, a good MQL to SQL handoff with sales. I want all these things. How did you go about determining that Cheetah Digital had that? So for others can kind of learn from your experience and what they should ask and what they should decide. So I'll, I'll turn the question around a little bit because I think it will help um, get to the right answer. So if you look at it through the prism of, I'm a marketer, what experience do I need as I'm building my career to ensure that I am always at the top table? And that's, that's I think, the, the key thing. Because people are never going to just give you access unless you deserve it, right? And yep. you know, this, is, this is probably going to annoy some of your viewers maybe, but the reality is, if you've just been in marketing and you're just going up through the marketing ladder, you are missing a ton of experience that actually you need to be at the top table of a company and to be respected and to be finance, sales, product, HR. Exactly. exactly. Now, you know, I became a CMO after being an entrepreneur and building a company from scratch. And when you do that, you know, you know, know. Part of the business. Yeah. 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 all fits together. I also had many years 
carrying a bag in sales and being a top salesman and getting to President's Club and winning awards. So I, I deeply understand sales and the revenue engine. So, you know, when I when I talk to, to, to my colleagues uh, at the top tier of Cheetah Digital, I don't talk to them like I'm the marketing guy. I talk to them as I'm a businessman that's helping this, this area execute. You know, I love that, Richard. What, what I tell consultants here, because we sell performance marketing, very like specific SEO, paid media, creative, just for mid-market enterprise SaaS companies, right? And I tell them the best consultants in the world are like, they're good at SEO or paid media as a technical skill, but they're great at finance, integration, product, and sales. In other words, the irony is the best marketers aren't the best at marketing. Right. <laughs> and it's a hard concept because this world, if you go on Twitter and you see yourself in the SEO community, it's like you got to learn Python. And I want to blow my brains out every time I hear an SEO talking about needing Python. So there's like one out of a billion use cases where Python's what you need. Well, a million out of a million times, it's soft skills, cross-departmental buy-in, road mapping, integration, financial alignment, modeling. And the irony is essentially the best SEOs are good at everything but SEO. Now, to your point, I see another thing out there a lot. And you didn't do this, by the way. I think Cheetah Digital has some of the best marketing I've seen. I actually just straight like not to blow your own you know, horn here, but like, you, you, you all are very good at it. Unfortunately, I see a lot of people take a CMO role for the first time at companies that suck at marketing. And they are illusion, disillusioned to think that they could somehow change it. <laughs> so if you're interviewing for a job, how important is it to you that they're already great at marketing? Like, do they need to be already great for you? Do they need to be okay? Like, how do you look at that? So um, uh, without wanting to uh, upset anyone, um, yeah, my belief when I when I so I sold my company to Cheetah Digital, and two months you know through a, 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 an integration process, sort of make, making through the integration, and then I, I basically had the conversations like I think I can make the marketing much better, and then that you know at, at that that CMO took over the CMO role, and um, you know for me actually a company that isn't very good at marketing is actually more interesting because you get to change stuff very very quickly very fast uh, versus just dropping into a company where it's all running great and i'm just keeping it ticking over you know i i i like building stuff so so coming into a company that that needs it to be built is in, in many ways more of an intellectual challenge i love that and i think the gap is is people sometimes can't tell if they're bad at marketing because they haven't focused on it or they're bad at marketing because they don't believe in it how, how do you kind of determine those two differences? Because that is that is the difference, right? Like if you go to anywhere, right, who's like, yeah, you're going to have a big budget. I'll let you spend any LTV CAC starting at one. You don't have to hit three in the first three quarters. You're going to get all this waste. And you don't need to get me returns for 24 months. Go build the dream for me, Richard. I'll be like, yeah, I'll go do that into a marketing job anytime. How do you tell the difference? Like how do you tell the difference between somebody who's bad at marketing because they don't believe in it and bad at marketing because they're not good at it? I think, I think you're you're probably both if you don't believe in it <laughs> that's that's probably you probably raised your hand and said hey that's me you, know, I mean, you, you you can't be good at something that you don't believe in that's for sure i love it 
I love it. Now, one of the things you all have done really well, in my opinion, is you've leveraged third-party data in the sense that you're not saying you're the best. You're letting Forrester say you are. Is Forrester still worth it? It's a really interesting question, actually. A very, very interesting question, and one that I've been thinking about quite a bit um, recently. So, yeah, they're not, they're not cheap. None of, none of the analysts are, are cheap. Um, but they, so they are useful because they have – there's already a, a scaled audience that looks to Forrester to Gartner for. Um, so they, have direct, they have direct traffic, essentially. Yeah. They have their own acquisition yeah. channel. Exactly. So they, 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 are, they are quite often a, a, a starting point for many companies that are looking at evaluating a new sector. Where I think the problem is, and you know, apologies, Forrester, if, if, uh, if you're going to be upset by this, the, the problem is, is the, the way their business is run. So, you know, and it, this is a sort of structural issue, which is, you know, you have a limited amount of analysts and the analysts do a report every, you know, two years, 18 months in a space. And, you know, they do, do a report. Great. I'm finished with offer management. I'm now going after loyalty or whatever else it is. And so they're dipping in and out of these very complex areas. Um, and the reports by nature are really just sort of taking a marketing pitch and sort of replaying it, you know, you know, take the Forrester waves, you have um, essentially a questionnaire, which has a character limit, so you can't hardly say anything on any of the questions, right? You, 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 you have a three-hour demo, right, which when you're doing, talking about big enterprise stuff is not enough time to get, you know, anywhere near through any of it. Um, and, and then uh, they will speak to three references for 20 minutes, now, I've spent more time buying cars. In fact, I've spent more time buying holidays than that. So Tell me what you really think, Richard. I love it. No. <laughs> now, before I follow up, because I think you have a great point. Are you ready to eat some sour candy? Yes, I am. I'm not. It's my least favorite part of the show, ironically. Are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. First one's not as bad as the second. Let's do this thing. Oh, blimey. Yeah. Two out of ten. Wait for the next one. Mm. Now, I completely agree. In other words, they spend more time doing an industry survey that everyone believes than prospects spend buying the damn thing. I think it's a fair way to look at it, right? Now, I'm spending millions and millions of dollars in SaaS, and I found our number one asset are these analyst reports. In other words, anytime I'm not at bottom of funnel intent, I'm either middle intent or top of funnel information or whatever. The analyst reports beat everything, right? I've got all our offers we run for all our clients and I can see kind of the data. Analyst reports win. I agree though, they aren't actually the best for the customer. So what can we do in your mind if we get creative together? How do we replace analyst reports? Like I've read them, you know, you go through them and you go see like why you should choose somebody and they'll talk about things like these are they're great unless you really want to grow in Africa and they struggle in Africa. And you're like, okay, Africa's not really on our roadmap for a couple of years. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not necessarily personalized. So what's if you don't like Forrester and you don't like Gartner, what's better? Like, what do we do? Are we stuck with them? Like, because they work so darn well. Like, what do we do instead in your mind? Yeah, so um the answer to this is. I wouldn't say 
replace you know Ghana or do away because they do they have their own audience so they have, there is usefulness as a as, right. a, as a, a point to get you know access to an audience that are interested in particular segments. Yeah. That said, I think it is and I've been guilty of this single laning on a, on an analyst or two, you know, usually the big ones, because the reality is, um, again, probably offend a few people, but when you have analysts that, that essentially have relationships, paid relationships with vendors, there is always going to be this issue that... The, you mean it's not on the total up and up, Richard? What's that? You mean these well, analysts I'm, aren't... I'm actually not saying that there's anything untoward because they do have the analyst groups separate from the sales groups. But just the reality of business, um, if you're an oracle, you know, you're going to be paying a gazillion dollars to these analysts. And, you know, the reality is businesses survive on money. So there's going to be more access. There's going to be more engagement. There's going to be more interaction with analysts of all different levels of the organization for an oracle versus new company startup, right, that only plays in one segment. So your level of access is by nature going to be much lower if you're a much smaller company to a much larger company. And that always is going to have an impact, unconscious or not, on results. It's kind of like awards, right? Like, you know, it's easier exactly. to win awards on if you submit 300 entries every year. Exactly, exactly. So, so you know, this scale works in your favor in, in technology with, with analyst relations. There's no question about that. You can see many different segments where you're like, always the big marketing clouds are shoved up there in the leaders' quadrant. You think, you know, it doesn't make any sense because – I'm picking up deals left, right, and center because everyone says that they've got massive issues. They're cobbled together platforms, you know, that haven't been invested in. Well, how come the analysts are seeing it differently? Well, don't forget, go back to what I said about the process, which is not very much. And if you're painting by numbers and just get, oh, do you do this bit? Oh, you've got something for that. Oh, you've got, oh, you do that. Oh, yeah, you've got, you bought someone that does that. You can easily get this impression that these, you know, that the scale and breadth of capability actually equals success. Well, guess what? It doesn't. Execution. Uh, and focus is what guarantees success for customers, which is why don't single lane on Forrester and Gartner and the big guys. Also go to the other analysts, more niche players or associations that actually are industry bodies that have much greater perspective on the reality of the rubber hitting the road on how things get done. So, uh, you know, we just did look the Forrester wave on loyalty. They only looked at 14 vendors, Right. They didn't really break it down. So it wasn't particularly useful for many people. We went to the Loyalty Loyalty 360, the largest loyalty association in America, and they have got 55 vendors in their Technology Today report, much more granular, many more customers that they're speaking to. They live loyalty day in, day out. For us to do as a starting point, great, but you want to go to the next level of detail. And so you've got to work with people at the very high macro level like Forrester and Gartner. And then the, the loyalty association, the niche vendors or analysts that really focus on that next level of detail. I think that's important. I love that. And it might even be more affordable sometimes too, I'd imagine. Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, the, the big guys are expensive. But, you, you know, you need to somehow find a budget to work with both ends of the spectrum. Because if you're a buyer, you're ultimately going to buy from the person that helps you through the buying process in the best manner. And I think being very transparent, very open, showing them the top level Gartner analysts, uh, Forrester analyst stuff, then the niche level stuff, explaining the differences. And ultimately, I want to I waste as little time as possible in conversations with customers where I'm not the best fit. I want to make my win rate as high as possible and have very focused conversations. And if it's in my interests, it's in the buyer's interests. 
if we can make that match very, very well. Oh, yeah, you bring down your blended customer acquisition cost. You have a much more efficiency and headcount throughout the entire org required to close a deal. And, and you get a lot better return on investment here. Now, one of my questions for you, and that I struggle with a lot, is a lot of times we think of capital allocation and marketing. And I spend a lot of time thinking about capital allocation by channel, um, by KPI. But very rarely have I seen us think about capital allocation by time horizon. In other words, you know, a lot of us are trying to hit, let's say, a Q2 goal or maybe a couple quarters out. And we know how to hit that. But we also know by investing in these channels that we're going to lower our LTV CAC ratio unless we can create balance in our capital allocation mixture of how we're going to market with different blended CAC rates on our channels. It's hard to do that, though. We all know to do it. And this is where I struggle, right? I know to do it, but I have to choose not to do the thing that's working right now where I could do it. So I have, a, you know, I'm rarely ever at 100% budget allocation where I would have diminishing marginal returns spending another dollar somewhere. But I also know that this has a high CAC and I need to balance it. But the thing that has a low CAC isn't going to hit this quarter and make me hit my revenue number. So you're doing this stupid little game in your head. How do you play that game, Richard? It's a very good point. That's a very good point. So not being a hostage to um, historical data, I think is important when you're looking at things like that because the market is evolving all the time. Now, it may be slightly different in certain segments and industries, but in our industry, high-end enterprise um, systems for delivering you know, cross-channel uh, marketing and loyalty – you can you can look at your data and go, wow, this data is showing me that this particular segment of customers has the best lifetime value, has the lowest customer acquisition costs, and therefore I, the data is telling me I should double down on that. But yet the industry is, is changing around you and stuff is happening in real time where you can see another vertical that may not have had the best LTV or may have been at higher customer acquisition costs actually could be turning in your direction. So you've always got to balance this myopic view of data to make decisions with the not, you know, deep domain knowledge about how industries are changing. And a good example of that in, in just in our space yeah. is we have in the last um, 18 months have had this phenomenal explosion of wins in restaurants and bars even in a pandemic that's crazy yeah it wasn't there two three years ago so you know and it's because we could see certain things changing in that industry that mapped to actually well honey they're kind of now with what they're trying to achieve with digital acceleration yeah they actually need our unique set of capabilities to actually achieve results in a more efficient way than other vendors in the market. So you've got to balance those two things. You can't be too myopic on data. You do also need to be looking at what's actually changing in industries around you. And you've got to place some bets to then see what is going to work. How do you do that at the channel level? Because I'm of this belief. I actually, I have the kind of saying I do in my own head. It's like, um, it's better to be data aware than data driven. Right. Um, I haven't, I haven't ever found myself to really know what to do from Data is this black hole that never there's no bottom to. You can just keep pursuing, and then the deeper you get with it, the more you realize it's not even accurate due to this other thing, that variable in your model, and you just end up worse. The more like so, I always say it's better to be data aware than data centric. Um, 
because you still need to use your brain. And it's ironic that a lot of times when we try to use data and we think we're smart, sometimes we're dumb, right? And it's kind of like this juggling act. Yeah. But you were talking about markets and opportunities and segments, but what about channels? In other words, like I've got 100K and I need to hit this goal in Q1 and I know I can't get it from SEO. But if I don't invest in my content, because like, I don't know about you, but I see a lot of times you have diminishing marginal returns from content for a long time. In other words, we write a bunch of content, we drive organic traffic, we get you know MQL downloads, we get asset downloads, but we're not able to get people from downloading our Gartner report to wanting a demo because there's no purchase intent. It's a difficult game, but we still want to build our database. So how do you balance channel allocation in your mind of like, okay, I'm going to run 100K on LinkedIn combo ads and I can hit my MQL goal or I can do SEO and I can lower my CAC, but I'm leaving money and opportunity on the table from this paid thing. Like how do you balance channels in your mind like that? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And I'd say, I'd say we're still in an evolutionary process, um, actually making sure that all of our data is correct. Because when you have a company that span out of another company, then acquired a bunch of other companies, loaded everything into a CRM system that now is a jungle mess. You know, you, you, what? Oh, I get it. I know exactly what you're talking about. Everybody's like this, by the way. All of us, if we get real honest, are like, yeah, our RevOps is not what I want it to be entirely right now. No, and it, you know, it, and it's it's a dynamic process, right? Because things are happening to, 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 to RevOps and to your CRM system. But you have to invest in, in whatever you inherit when you take over a CMO role. You've got to invest in cleaning it up, right? Because if the CRM system is not your single source of truth and you don't have all the right tracking and tagging and, um, you know, campaign objects and the rest of the stuff in a way that you can translate what's going on and be sure that that data is telling you some, some good stuff. You're going to you're gonna make mistakes on what bets you make on channels because the data isn't, isn't correct. And we're still in that process of probably two-thirds of the way of cleaning everything up so we can yeah. start to get much better data uh, through. Whilst we've been doing that, what I've been doing is making is really betting on a more fundamental marketing principle, which is it's all about the database. And so we grew our database three and a half thousand percent in our target makers. We had a huge increase in the amount of campaign members that are connecting with our content because we focused on what can we do to build that database? What you know, I'm going to spend money on paid media or paid events or paid engagement on the basis that they're going to give me data. Data from that. It's right for now. It's getting down the, the the priority level. That won't be the case forever. But I also inherited a much tiny, tiny digital footprint that I needed to massively expand. But that that actual focus on on, on data really interestingly has allowed us to massively decrease some of the costs in marketing because now I can't find a vendor that can drive more people to a webinar, to an ebook, or whatever in my my target focus markets than I can. I love that. And now you get to own your audience. Now we have one last piece of candy. I'm going to ask a follow up there because I think there's another thing that's brilliant about that data strategy. And it's essentially future proofing your ability to acquire customers. And are you ready? Ready. So much worse. I'm telling you, it's the second one that kills you, man. Oh yeah. He's not worse. The second one. I know everybody thinks I'm like joking or something. I'm like, no, no, I'm being dead serious. The second one kills you. Wow. I'm gonna have so many of these screenshots the rest of my life. <laughs> oh man. Oh. 
My my eyes are watering. I know. <laughs> the um whew. the cookieless world we're about to enter. What does it mean practically? I'll pick up the water that's really <laughs> practically. Does this mean uh, 12 months from now I'm gonna go on LinkedIn and I can't target directors of demand gen at software companies with more than 100 employees? What does it actually mean? Like what what will I will I not be able to do, you think? I think the impact is going to be much, much greater on B2C marketers than B2B marketers. Um, I think with just with the way that the legislation is rolling out, they're clearly focusing on um, the the larger players in the market, the larger volumes, you know, and, and the fines and the rest of it associated. And the, and the way that they're monitoring people's, how they're respecting privacy and stuff, it's, it's very much tiered to, to volume and therefore B2C. So I think B2B marketers they should behave but they're not we're going to be the ones that are going to have the brunt of the impact b2c marketers are facing a massive disruption uh to the way that they have been doing uh business there's no question um it has been not easy but facebook and google have made it with a coterie of different third-party data suppliers and data integrations and pervasive tracking uh, and all the rest of it have made it very easy for marketers to hyper-personalize content and offers at scale to an audience, a customer audience they didn't know. And they've been doing that for 10 years, 12 Women years. Women who make over X amount of money, who want to buy a luxury car, who also follow Lululemon, and then you can sling yoga pants, let's say. Exactly. Yeah. Am I going to be able to sling? You won't be able to sling yoga pants anymore, is what you're saying. Worse than that, some people are talking yeah. about you'll only be able to recognize 10% of your audience because of these changes in privacy. And basically, what Google have come out and said on March the 3rd on their blog, they said every marketer needs to be prioritizing um, first party data relationships with customers. You need to have a direct relationship with your customer. If you have a direct relationship with your customer and you, you've got the permission to use their data, they will provide paths forward for you to double down on using that data to drive effective advertising. Okay. The problem that you've got is that some industry segments, retail, for example, they own their own data and many, many you know, online retailers do, so they're fine. There's people like P&G and Unilever and Kellogg's and you know, major brands that work through retailers that don't own their own data. They're some of the biggest advertisers in the world. So they're now rushing to build out their own databases and build out direct connections to consumers so that they have that relationship that is allow, going to allow them to do personalization properly moving forward with all of these changes. So agencies like Group M are just drooling right now because they've been essentially acquiring data for years and now a lot these B2C kind of companies are going to have to even go to them more often instead of building an agency in-house a lot of times because they're having all the data aggregation. It's the opposite, actually. The Group M's of the world are, are crying right now. Because a lot of the, I feel sorry for them in many ways, but a lot of the agencies and a lot of the big tech guys like Oracle and Adobe and others invested in huge, amount, huge amounts in building up their data sets, but they didn't. Yeah, they bought weather.com, they buy all these like data aggregators, and then they use that to do better programmatic. But you're saying because they don't, they're not first party, they won't Correct. use it. Correct. All the third party stuff is it's how do you prove it's first party? So, how can I, 
how do I prove that they've opted in? What, 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 how are they going to like? How are they going to police this? Do you think? Well, it's very interesting because the, the the privacy legislation is putting the onus on. It's not just enough to say, "Oh yeah, well, you know, I had some sort of relationship with the consumer." Did the consumer actually understand what they were giving you rights to do with their data? You know, just being oh buried very deeply in a terms and conditions that nobody reads and nobody understands. That that is that's right on the crosshairs of all the lawmakers uh, right now. So you 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 can't rely quite often on data that you collected in the past, even if it was a first party data relationship, because it's falling falling foul of GDPR or CCPA legislation about what the consumer actually thought they were giving you. Uh, you know, how you're going to have to have first-party data that qualifies for GDPR, CCPA, and that you can validate if you got audited that the yeah. consumer truly opted in with full awareness, and thus you can target them. Exactly. Exactly. And then and Facebook will say, "Cool, if you give us those emails and upload it to our database, we'll then give you some options to target those people." Yes, and if you've collected that data in a very transparent manner. And, you know, you've clearly got the opt-ins and all the rest of it. That's great. You've got that first-party data relationship. You can load that up into your platforms. You can do all sorts of stuff. And Google have basically committed to deepening the things that you can do in the future with, with first-party data, which is great. Problem is, you now need to, most companies need to go in the last, you know, 18 months, they've had to restart all of their programs to go and acquire data, if they had any in the first place. So we're in a big data-gathering Space. Right? I can imagine using, you know, first initial last name. I can go to Zoom Info. I can go to Clearbit. I can go to Seamless. I can go to Lead IQ for consumer data. It's not easy to get somebody's Gmail. It's a heck of a lot easier to get their corporate address. Correct. Yeah, and that's going to cause a huge amount of problems for B two C. I can totally see that. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, in B two B, you've got things like you can show that you've got a relationship, a business relationship with a company, and therefore everybody in that company, you know, you've got fair games to go get their data. You, you can't do that with a you know 50 yeah. million consumers like yep. no entity that, that you know sits on top of them. Oh, wow, that's crazy. Well, Richard, this has been amazing. I want to respect your time. This has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for being on Sour and Sass. If people want to follow along with you and Cheetah Digital, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, cool. That's uh, my main platform, and uh, CheetahDigital.com. Loads of content that you can engage with. Uh, you can, you know, uh, tap me up through through the, the the main website as well. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, and uh, have a great day. Thank awesome. you. Appreciate it.